Amazing Grace. Uh, what a beautiful hymn that is timeless in its depth. And we're going to look at that theme of grace this morning as we look one more time at uh, timeless truths. These are truths in Scripture that defy time our humanity. Uh, many people think, well, the Bible's outdated. It's an old book. The problem is it deals with people, though, and people have not changed. The realities that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden concerning temptation and who they're going to love, who they're going to serve, and what they're going to do with their choices, that has not changed. Human beings have not changed. So Scripture looks at a great God who is basically chasing down people all through time, uh, trying to get them to go the direction he always intended, whether that started in Adam and Eve or uh, is right here at this very hour, seeking the people that he loves desperately, that he created. So even though the settings have changed and the Babylonian Empire is no longer here, or ancient Israel is no longer here, or the Rome of the first centuries no longer here. There's still a people that desperately need God's grace. And God's love is continuing to reach out to, to, uh, to humanity as it marches forward. So that is just one of many reasons that make Scripture timeless. Because it's dealing with people who literally have not changed as far as their, their makeup. That song, Amazing Grace... It's a song that's kind of crept into our culture. At times, Hollywood and other groups will kind of allow it into maybe a music-oriented event, uh, allow someone that sings secular songs will sing that song. Uh, you'll hear it at different events. Think about the song. There's a part everyone's comfortable with, but there's a very uncomfortable part that comes very quickly. Amazing grace. Here's the comfortable part. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Comfortable that saved a wretch like me. There's the uncomfortable part. Even in our psalm book, as I looked at it, there's part that's been rewritten where it allows us to sing, who saved a sinner like me, and that's accurate. But I think there's a degree of uncomfortableness with the word wretch. Um, are we really that wretched? That's about the worst word I can think of in the English dictionary to describe people. But yet John Newton, who wrote the hymn in the 1700s, who was a former slave trader, who returned to the faith that he had abandoned when he was young and felt a tremendous amount of guilt and understood the grace of God as he came back to it, understood what he had been saved from. So when he wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, who saved a wretch like me, he knew the depths of sin that he had plunged to. But somebody said, well, that was just him. He was a slave trader, and he probably should have said it even worse. But the Apostle Paul was the one who first echoed those words. Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. As the Apostle Paul talks about how that there's good that he wants to do and that he ought to do, but he finds within himself evil is right there with him, and he chooses the opposite, which is our struggle. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? So it's coming to terms with our wretchedness, yet also coming to terms with God's grace is what we want to do uh, this morning. 
What I want to first see in two of our final thoughts concerning timeless truths is first see that God has paved your way with grace. And this song, Amazing Grace, has stood the test of time because it does capture the truth of God's Word, our wretchedness, but also God's love, His mercy, and His kindness that not only reached back to our past to save us from our sin when we were baptized, but also continues to cleanse us now, as John says in 1 John 1.9, and will continue to cleanse us in our future. So this phrase, God has paved our way with grace. He's gone back, He's paving in the present, and He will pave in the future till He calls us home. It's true, He has paved our way by grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at a text that probably is the one that is gone to the most often to capture what it means to be saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here the Apostle Paul writes, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. There's the past. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, crazy, uh, the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of what? Wrath. Verse 4, but because of His Great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here in this powerful text, Paul three times points to the fact that we are not saved by our goodness, or that God found us good enough, where he grades on the curve and we, we're at the higher end of the curve. Or that somehow we've impressed him by how well we've done the last three months. Or that because we were raised in a family of faith, that qualifies us to be accepted. We find none of that kind of jargon 
Paul doesn't entertain any thoughts of us being accepted by God by anything that we have done to show ourselves worthy. He simply goes back to this thought, we are saved by grace. And we are deserving of wrath. And this is hard because I don't see that. I don't see myself when I've sinned as deserving of God's wrath. That is punishment for my sin. I just see many times I made a mistake. Or I wish I'd done better. Just like students on a test. I wish I'd done better. But God sees the heinous nature of what we've done wrong much greater. It's a front to the way He made us in His image. When we sin, it's an affront to what we should do with each other as far as love each other and treat each other right, respect Him, to love Him. When we sin, whether it be gossip or slander or adultery or, or lying or cheating, stealing, whatever it is, it's an affront to God, the One who loves us more than anyone, the One who's cared for us and created us for so much more. And we, we just reject that and we give Him the hand. Just say, well, we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans 7. I see this desire to do good, but I do sin instead. He says we're deserving of wrath. But instead in this great story of Scripture, we find that that is not what God gives us. He does not give us what we deserve. That is His wrath. Instead, our God gives us what we do not deserve. And that is His mercy. That is His amazing grace that reaches out to us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I will know nothing other than Jesus and Him crucified. Because the Apostle Paul, who went from being someone who persecuted and even contributed towards God's people being killed, understood he was forgiven by an amazing grace. When Jesus appeared to him on the road of Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and literally knocked him off his horse uh, and showed him as his directed, res resurrected Savior he was and told him to go to meet up with this man Ananias who told him the way of Christ, baptized him. He understood he was forgiven by an amazing grace that would reach into his past and no matter how bad he had sinned would save him of that sin. And we all have the haunted houses of our past. The things of our teens that we hope no one ever knows about. Inexcusable, inexcusable choices of our 20s. And, and pick any age period. We talked last week. We, we have things that we want to stay locked away. But yet God knows it all. But yet He still reaches out by grace to save us. While we were yet dead... We were reached out, God reached out to us to save us. Uh, we were spared punishment, given mercy. But notice God did not demand repayment either. If you go into default with a creditor, if you're lucky, you put on a repayment plan. Level of bankruptcy, well, what do you have to give? And you can start paying that for a long period of time. But we don't find in Scripture God requiring us to pay Him back for the things that we've done that we have no excuse for. No probation, no parole, no ankle bracelets, no urine test, and all the things that people who have done wrong in the past have to subject themselves to 
simply to prove they're on the right path. God requires none of that. He simply extends amazing grace. He doesn't rub our nose in the things we've done wrong. He doesn't remind us of what we did back in the 70s. He simply forgives us based on our coming to His Son and being forgiven by obeying Him, submitting ourselves to baptism, confessing Him as Lord, repenting of our sins. We find forgiveness at the place of baptism. But again, without God saying, I need you to sign on this paper that you're not going to commit any more sin. And that's why it's amazing. Because where else do you find that? You won't find it in the American legal system. You won't find it in the Constitution. You will not find that many times in your own family, that degree of grace. There's family members that will not talk to each other because of something that happened 40 years ago. It was never resolved. Despite them being blood kin, their friendships have been shattered because of someone betraying a secret or revealing something that was not supposed to be talked about. And now that person won't even answer your messages or communicate on any level. But they were your friend, your closest friend. Or friends have decided you've done too much and they're embarrassed by you now. But instead we find this amazing grace that God shows to us. But what makes it even more amazing is God does not leave us simply forgiven. Look at uh, Titus chapter 2 now. Just when you think you've exhausted God's grace, it challenges us even further. This is a text we read at the very beginning of the service. Look what Paul now says. In addition to God taking care of our past and paving our way by grace... In verse 11 of Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Notice here in verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So this amazing grace is open to everyone, which is another aspect of it being amazing. Not only does God take care of our sin by forgiving it, he opens it to all people. Not just those who have cleaned up their lives already, or those of a certain race, or those of a certain status or wealth. But then it says, verse 12, this is what makes it more amazing. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God does, doesn't just leave us forgiven. Uh, our God doesn't just clean us up and then leave us where He found us. Many times with those who are hope, uh, homeless, people be content to throw $5 into the cup, but keep on driving. <laughs> if that person's on the street corner where it's convenient to keep on driving when the light turns green. But basically, we're leaving a person right where we found them. 
But our God doesn't do that with us. He not only cleans us up through His grace and He forgives all of our past, He takes care of the present, and He secures our future. He says, I don't want you to continue in this path. In fact, I won't let you continue in this path. To simply allow you to be with all the addictions or all the temptations and the unresolved guilt and the problems that you've had, I will spend the rest of my life in your life. Uh, God's life is unlimited, but He spends the rest of our life working on us. Recreating us in His own image. Paul says, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. We have a chance to start over. In fact, we're starting over and over all the time. Because God is always in this process of renewing us. He doesn't leave us how He found us. And He motivates us by His love. It says His grace teaches us. God does not motivate us by guilt. If you've had a parent that guilted you into everything, you probably struggled with your years growing up. Guilt makes you feel guilty. And just being reminded of what you did wrong or being reminded of what you owe a person all the time and or having a person that maybe bailed you out from a financial problem, but them always reminding you. Remember what I did for you 10 years ago? Remember what I did for you 20 years ago? And that leaves a very uncomfortable taste in your mouth and maybe that help was too expensive. Because a person keeps reminding you of what they did. And guilting you into different things. But our God, He simply reminds us of His love. And when we're reminded of what He's done for us, we're simply spurred onward to give our lives in full devotion to Him. At times we, we, we're weak and we struggle with that. But we get right back up and we're, we're reminded every first day of the week what God did for us, but out of love He compels us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the love of God compels us. Think for a moment how many times we get that opportunity. It's very rare. A lot of times I've only seen it in people that are the recipients of a transplant. Where someone has given up part of their body to allow the body of someone else, oftentimes someone they don't even know that well, to continue on living. And that person, uh, usually that's the donor, never wants to hold it over the head of the recipient. They're just thankful that they could do it, as our God is. And the one that, who is the recipient of an organ donation, if it's allowed them to continue on living as they receive a body part from someone else and they keep going. They're always thankful. Or even if a person passed away, they're thankful to the family that a heart was designated to be given if that person would die. And they're always thankful to that family and they're always connected to the family of the one who passed. Out of love and devotion that Someone set aside and they're planning for their future a willingness to give part of their body that someone else might live. So that recipient is always reminded of love and out of love maybe will do things for that family as life goes on and help them because they realize they were given something they couldn't have done for themselves. So in that powerful sense, God has saved our way by grace. Grace. 
I want to read one of the songs that I haven't heard in a long time, but I remember my father leading this song growing up. Got to see my father yesterday. He's up in Sacramento in a skilled nursing facility. He's been living in an independent facility, but he took a fall and will never go back to that place. He's 94. Uh, he and I have had a turbulent past, but it's much, much better now. And we had a good time together with my brother and sister yesterday and got to exchange some words and tell him I loved him. And he told me back, I love you, son. And it was just a beautiful moment. And I have many memories of his help and his love and devotion growing up. But I remember him leading songs at the Church of Christ in Napa growing up. And I remember this song that captures so well God's grace. The song is, in some books, entitled At Calvary. In this book, it's Years I Spent in Vanity. And the song goes this way to capture grace. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me He died on Calvary. By God's word at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own Him as my King. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Calvary was the place of Christ's death for us, where He paved our way for the future by His grace, paves our way in the present, and took care of our past. No greater love has been shown. And our final thoughts this morning, I want to add this complimentary thought to God has paved your way by grace, which is this, and loved you in your darkest hours a thousand different ways. And loved you in your darkest hours in a thousand different ways. Uh, the song I just read to you begins with this one line, years I spent in vanity and pride not that my Lord was crucified. Our darkest hours are difficult places to revisit. Because they look different, but every one of us has our darkest hours. Where even in the present time, our God continues to love us with His grace. Those darkest hours might be hours of rebellion. Where even after being baptized into Christ, we went into a period of time where we just didn't care what God thought or what He wanted or what was important to Him or that He gave His Son for us and we just did what we wanted. We just walked away from the Lord. We left the church and we just kind of lived as a prodigal son. It might not have been that wild. We just did what we wanted. God still loved you and me even in those times of rebellion. 
those darkest hours. Those darkest hours can be times of ambivalence, where there was a body coming to church, but there was no heart there. There was no love, there was no joy, there was no uh, driving to be the person that God always intended for us to be. We were just ambivalent. We were just doing what we'd always done most of our life. Those are dark hours. Uh, he loved us in our darkest hours, even times of betrayal. When we said we wouldn't do one thing, but yet we did. And we'll look just a minute at the Apostle Peter, because he had his darkest hour. It might be times of distraction, where instead of devoting ourselves to prayer and to study, we just kept on watching TV. It might be times of misplaced priorities where we could have helped, but we just didn't because we knew someone else would. But sometimes our darkest hours are simply times of grief and loss. Where our hearts sink and a time of sadness because people that were in our lives passed on and are not there anymore and there's an empty chair where a person used to sit every morning. Sometimes the darkest hours are times of great hurt where someone said something about us or they did something to us that simply hurt because it didn't represent the truth and it's something that we didn't deserve. But someone just did something hurtful. That's a dark hour. Times of depression. Times where we can't get ourselves going and we don't know why. Our God still loves us. Times of loneliness, where we feel like we're abandoned, we feel like no one cares, but yet He cares. And there's a song that says, Oh, yes, He cares. Where do we get that kind of love? Again, at times we have family members that don't even know where we're at and haven't spoken to us for three weeks, three months, or sometimes three years or more. We have friends that have lost our address don't know who to call and haven't tried that hard to find us. We have former co-workers who kind of once the retirement party was held just kind of didn't see us as really part of their life anymore. Or maybe we didn't see us as part of their life. I don't know. But There's times of darkness where things simply are not what they used to be. And as age creeps on, Regret sometimes will come in and create a darkest hour or frustration with things not being done that you used to do and those are dark hours to wrestle with those things. But our God is always there to love us in our darkest hours. When we pursue a time of rebellion, He's still there waiting. He'll chase us down. He can't make us do the right thing. But He's still there chasing. His love working through our conscience, uh, working through messages uh, that keep telling us we're doing the wrong thing. I remember years ago, I was down a wrong path in a certain area, and every time I saw a movie, there was something in a movie that <laughs> basically hit my conscience telling me that's what you're doing. And the old hymn, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, <laughs> seems so real that our God just never really leaves us alone because He loves us, even in those dark times when we want to do our own thing. And the Apostle Peter says, let me tell you about my dark time. You think you have a dark time? The Apostle Peter says, let me tell you about mine. I want to turn to the book of 
Luke chapter 22. Our dark times usually are not written down for all time. But the Apostle Peter's dark time is. But he wants us to learn from it. This is near the end of Jesus' public life on earth. And his tone becomes more ominous. He becomes, or he arrives at the point where he tells his disciples more and more what's coming as far as his arrest and his giving himself over, yet they don't really grasp that. But he will tell them about what's going to go on in their life at times. In verse 31 of Luke 22, it says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's other name, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know. Here, Jesus knows what's coming. Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. He knows what Satan's going to do to Peter. Peter proclaims right in front of the whole church, I'm going <laughs> to, if you will, I'm going to not be the one that denies you. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus tells him before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny that you even know me. Peter's thought at that time, there's no way that's going to be me. Now we have the arrest of Jesus, verse 54, Luke 22. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when there was some that had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Verse 60, Peter replied, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Those darkest hours. No one will love you in those times like your heavenly father will. Even Jesus knew that darkest hour was coming. But remember what he said in verse 31. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He loved Peter enough to tell him, I know what you're going to do. He looks straight at him when he does it. Peter goes out and cries bitterly. But Jesus has already told him, when you return, when you come back to me, I want you to strengthen your brothers. That's a love that will not let us go. But even our God knows the direction we're headed and has to be an eyewitness to what we said or what we did. 
that love never stopped. And he loves us in our darkest hours in a thousand different ways. David could tell you of that love when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, tried to cover it up and murdered her husband, but God still loved him. Mary Magdalene, who had wrestled with seven demons and struggled with things in her personal life, could talk about love in her darkest hours. Rahab, who was a prostitute but was still used by God because he saw something in her, could talk about her darkest hours. Adam and Eve, who inexcusably sinned as the prototype human beings, could talk about a God who pursued them when they were running from Him and ask, where are you? Because He was trying to find them, though they were trying to run from Him. God loves us in a thousand different ways. At times, He spares us the consequences we deserve. At times, He allows consequences to get our attention to teach us through pain not to do that again. God will love us a thousand ways through messengers, through people that will make the phone call, send the email, to prick our conscience, to tell us they still care about us, even when we don't care about them anymore. God will provide protection to save us from things that we are doing that might be reckless. God provides blessings. He reaches out and takes care of us at every moment. And He restores us when we come back to Him. That love cannot be bought. You'll find it nowhere but in your God, and that's why we stay close to Him. God has paved your way with grace and loved you in your darkest hours a thousand different ways. How could we let Him go? That's why Peter also said, To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Know that staying with your God is the only way to go. And one day, He's going to pave the way for you to enter His heavenly home and everything He's prepared for you will be realized. I want to end with Paul's ending words about God loving him in his darkest hours. And Paul writes from prison in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's your destiny as well and mine. God's going to bring us home. Remember these timeless truths. Quick review, and then we'll sing. God controls the world you see and walks you through it all. God searches the depths of your soul and loves you to the core. God has paved your way with grace and loved you in your darkest hours a thousand different ways. Stay close to Him and never turn your back on Him. And you'll see you home.